Hi, everybody. Welcome to the April 23rd, 2021 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you so much for joining us. In the wake of the George Floyd murder verdict, the Colorado legislature is up debating updates to strengthen and clarify the police accountability law passed last year. The proposed changes include requirements for de-escalation techniques to be used by police and would change the standard of when police may use deadly force. Patty Calhoun from Westward, uh, this has been advertised as tweaks to the law. Do you think that's how it's being accepted, and are they needed tweaks? Well, think back a year ago, George Floyd was still alive. We didn't have the protests. We weren't really looking at this police reform bill, 217. Then you had, the legislature was out. They came back. And it's not a surprise that there were a few things they needed to tweak in that bill because it was sweeping and it was passed very quickly in the wake of the, George, the um, racial justice demonstrations and the demands for police uh, reform. So some of the things they're doing, they closed the loophole. Remember, Greenwood Village had used this loophole to indemnify law officers from civil liability. They've, they're working on closing that loophole. They're expanding it because it was really just for local municipality, municipalities, not the Colorado State Patrol. So that's been included. It's not a surprise that they would have to make some changes. So far, they look pretty good. The definition of deadly force is has been an issue. And, of course, we saw it in Denver during the demonstrations where people were supposed to, officers were supposed to use less lethal force. But the definitions varied between municipalities, so it didn't really make for a cohesive response. I think we'll see this go through pretty smoothly. David Kopel from the Independence Institute and DU Law School. Uh, David, when you're here, we need to tweak a law that seems to me that some problems came up. And depending on which side of the aisle, you may decide if those were problems or not. But from what you can see is what's going on this year solving any significant problems. Well, to thinking about what was going on a year ago, um, 14 months ago, I testified in the state legislature for what was what eventually became the bill that was enacted later in June and I did it when it was not popular or trendy or in the news. So and I suggested at that testimony that the proponents should sit down with law enforcement and work out compromises because the proponents had some stuff that looked good on paper, but in, in some cases wasn't practical or went too far. And to the sponsor's credit, they eventually did that and produced a much better bill. I, I think this thing needs to go through the same thing. It, it, it's 27 pages long, so there's a lot of stuff. And as, as Patty said, some things you know, just seem like straightforward common sense, like make Colorado State Patrol follow the same rules that, that local law enforcement has to. The question is, on, on this deadly force thing, I've read it, but I don't understand it because the existing state law for everybody, including police officers certainly, is you can only use deadly force when you reasonably believe based on the circumstances that no lesser force would suffice. So I don't see what gets changed by saying, well, you must have exhausted de-escalation techniques because that, that's already what, what the standard is. And obviously there's a lot of situations where you can't go through every six other alternative steps of de-escalation because the criminal's trying to murder someone right now and, and you have to act. You have to go from zero to, to deadly force immediately to save somebody else's life. So we, we need to get some more understanding and work with law enforcement on, on what change exactly they're trying to make. Eric Soderman, columnist with the Denver Gazette and Colorado Politics, joins us remotely. Eric, what do you think about this being promoted as 
tweaking the past law. I mean, when I hear that, I hear, okay, there were some problems to fix, and what we're seeing now aren't sweeping changes, just adjustments. Is, is that the case? Well, any 27-page bill is probably more than just tweaking, uh, as I think has been referenced. Uh, it was certainly a cultural moment this week in Minneapolis and across the nation. Uh, I was pleased with the verdict. That struck me as the appropriate verdict, more importantly, the just verdict. In terms of now where it goes, both on a federal level and state by state, and particularly with respect to the Colorado bill, as I indicated, I think there are good features to the Colorado bill that ought to be passed and I think will be passed uh, speedily. But this whole debate strikes me as lacking in nuance these days, which goes with so many debates that we have in our country. Uh, I found myself on some wandering into some social media feeds after the verdict where people were appalled and uh, Officer Chauvin, former Officer Chauvin, didn't do anything improper, blah, 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 which boggles the mind. But then on the other side, you know, there are a lot of people who want to fit any police shooting, any police use of force into a certain narrative to, to, to satisfy that narrative. And that is equally improper and equally bonkers. Uh, nuance is what is needed. No two situations are identical. Police do have to make very quick, often split-second decisions. Um, and we can only hope that they get it right far more often than they don't. Marianne Goodland, Chief State House Reporter for Colorado Politics, also joins us remotely. Marianne, it's great to have you back. And I'm curious to what the reaction has been at the Capitol and specifically uh, how they approach this with the timing. Uh, was it coincidence that we saw this the same week of the verdict? Yes, probably, because this bill has been on the calendar for about two weeks now. And the jury didn't go to uh, their deliberations until the end of the week last week. This bill, this is 1250, is one of two dozen bills dealing with how law enforcement officers do their job in the 2021 session. And some folks have described this, including some of the sponsors, as, as that some of these bills are really antagonistic and some are more collaborative. Uh, the bill that, that they're looking at right now is definitely not the same as uh, the 2020 bill and, because that bill had a lot of bipartisan collaboration uh, when it moved through the Senate. This bill does not, and, and that, that's a huge difference, uh, one that's been pointed out uh, by folks like Sheriff Justin Smith of Larimer County. Uh, I did a fairly comprehensive write-up on those two dozen bills for a piece that will be running in Colorado politics this weekend. And Sheriff Smith points out that 217, the bill from last year, there are parts of that that still haven't even gone into effect yet, and here they are tweaking this bill. Um, he has some real concerns about this use of force, and the bill as it went through committee this week actually is less clear on use of force than it was in the introduced version. Governor Polis signed two bills regarding guns this week. The first requires gun owners to securely store weapons with a trigger lock or in a gun safe if not being worn on their person. The second requires owners to report a stolen gun within five days of discovery of theft. Uh, David, you have talked, uh, you've been a part of uh, uh, arguments on a lot of different gun laws over the years. So as you look at these, are they significant? Well, to be precise, the storage law says store your guns so that a minor doesn't 
get a hold of them without the consent of the minor's parents. So it does not require guns to be locked up necessarily. That all depends on the circumstances. And of course, if you think you're fine with your kids having guns uh, whenever, then that's your right to, to give that, that consent. Uh, the, the basic point is, is has some common sense behind it, and there's also uh, social science uh, that support, says the idea supports the idea that that uh, gun storage laws uh, sometimes can be beneficial. But unfortunately, the bill that was signed by Governor Polis uh, comes from the, the far extreme. So it says when you're sleeping, it's okay in your bed. You can have a you can put a handgun on your bedside table, you know, right on on top of it there, but it's Ill, but you can't uh, store it on the top of your, the shelf of your closet. No government's got any legitimate right or interest in micromanaging people's lives in their own homes to that uh, excessive detail. Eric, clearly we have uh, uh, gun laws in Colorado have always been a flashpoint. Uh, I think back to 2013. This doesn't seem like we're going down that road yet, but do you think there's some significance to what we've seen past this week? Sure, there's significance. I uh, was looking at that photo that you had up of the Governor Polis's bill signing ceremony, and I miss seeing David in that picture. I'm sure he was off in the wings uh, somewhere. Uh, I don't think we're yet at the flashpoint. That may come with some of the bills that uh, Senator Steve Fenberg and others are getting ready to introduce. Uh, I think these were good bills on balance. Uh, if I'd been in the legislature, I certainly would have voted for them. But I'm not naive enough to think that there's some kind of magical curative that they're automatically going to uh, fix problems, that somehow they're going to reduce these instances of mass shootings just by themselves. Uh, If you look at what just came out in the news today, uh, the Boulder shooter, the the mass murderer from a month ago, uh, the magazine he was carrying was in violation of state law. So you can pass laws, but that doesn't always equal or in fact, doesn't even often equal compliance in these situations. Marianne, as Eric mentioned, uh, this is uh, just a few of what's expected to be more uh, gun-focused legislation throughout this session. Is this just the tip of an iceberg? Is this the easy stuff before the hard stuff? What's your take? You're absolutely correct with that. This is the tip of the iceberg. We are going to see some fairly major gun control bills with uh, in now that we're in the last half of the legislative session, although the possibility of an assault weapons ban seems to be fading pretty quickly, uh, despite the support for this from Majority Leader Steve Finberg in the state Senate, whose district includes the King Supers where that shooting took place. Uh, reportedly said he didn't want to, quote, blow up the chambers, unquote, with an assault weapons ban. um, More likely what we're going to see are bills on mental health, which has some bipartisan interest. Uh, What doesn't have particular bipartisan interest are bills allowing local governments to pass more restrictive gun control bills. And this is also somewhat a reaction to the district court decision that struck down the assault weapons ban in Boulder, which was just a few days before the uh, King Super shooting. Patty, it wasn't that long ago when we saw the full recall bonanza after the uh, bigger uh, gun control laws were passed in 2013. Do you, uh, pardon me, after the issues in 2013, do you feel that that is still fresh in the minds of legislators? Well, if they were ever going to pass more restrictive laws, you would think this would be the year, given the makeup of the legislature and the heinous crime in Boulder earlier this year. But 
right now, it's like a clean closet law. I'm glad they're. I'm glad they're not coming to check mine because a gun would be the least of the concerns they'd have if they looked in my closet. I also don't understand five days. Like, what are you doing for the five days before you call to report that your gun is stolen? It's not within five days of it being stolen. It's within five days of finding out. So these seem like very, very timid measures in a lot of ways. The Denver City Council is considering requiring a license in order to be a landlord in Denver. The proposal from Councilwoman Stacy Gilmore is designed to track rental units and ensure building standards are being met. The license fees range from $25 to $50 per unit. The city estimates that there are 525,000 rental units currently within city boundaries. Uh, Eric, I'm no mathematician, but just doing some pretty simple math in this, it seems like there's a whole lot of money coming into the city coffers if this is passed. Perhaps I'm being cynical. It won't be the first time, or it won't be the last time either. Uh, what do you think? Oh, there's just no room on this program, Dominic, for such cynicism. I, I tell you, none of <laughs> none of the rest of us ever uh, go down that road or, or or so engage. Of course, you're. I mean, uh, tongue out of cheek. Uh, of course, your cynicism is warranted. Of course, this looks like uh, that it is significantly motivated by the revenue side of the equation. Um, when I first heard of this a few weeks ago, my initial reaction was one of being so grateful that all the other problems of Denver are in such good hands, are all solved, that we can uh, move on to this one uh, as if city government doesn't have enough on its plate and enough to tackle at the moment. Of course, there's a misnomer that somehow this expense is going to be borne by landlords. In most cases, it will be included in their cost of doing business. And ultimately, then that gets passed on to tenants uh, in the form of rent and in the form of higher rent. I'm sure there are problems out there to be addressed, uh, but I don't know that this kind of massive licensing scheme where one hasn't existed is necessarily or even wisely the way to address them. Marianne, not every idea out of Denver city government is copied by other city governments, but if they do come up with a way to make, uh, by my math, over $20 million, I can't imagine that other city councils around the metro area wouldn't at least take note. Do you think this has the potential of becoming a more popular issue in other areas? I'm surprised Boulder hasn't done it yet. This sounds like a Boulder idea to me. Um, and, and I expect other uh, progressive communities will probably also take a look at this. I find it an interesting approach to a somewhat long-term problem, which is that too many people who own properties, and this applies to companies too, don't maintain them very well. I've, I've had some personal experience with that. I lived in a three-unit house in Capitol Hill at one point where the second floor railing would have given away with no encouragement at all. And on, on another day found that the bathroom floor had completely rotted away. Um, but as we know, the devil is always in the details, as we say. So I'll be curious to see how this works in practice. Patty, is this going to effectively root out all the slumlords in Denver or is it a, is it a money grab? Well, it sounds like a money grab to me because you could just have laws that landlords and property owners must obey and just make sure they are obeying them rather than making them pay a fee that will, of course, be passed on to the renters. The renters are having enough trouble right now in the state trying to find anything affordable. The last thing they need is to have landlords put this on them.
David, we've talked more than once about uh, a potential tax hike being disguised as a fee. This might just be a fee disguised as a fee, but what do you think? Uh, so my dad got into politics, first elected to the state legislature in 1964, over consumer rights issues. And one of the things he found in his 22-year career was that occupational licensing is frequently something that is anti-consumer. It's a way to extract raise prices on the consumers for the benefit of the of the insiders. This is the same kind of thing. As everybody said, this is going to be $20 million that's going to come out of the pockets of renters in Denver, making housing less affordable. And so for what purpose? They say to track rental units. So the Denver city government can have a list of every abuela who's renting out a room in her basement. Uh, they sh people shouldn't be put on surveillance lists for using their own property. And then it's supposedly to enforce building codes and things like that. Well, right now you can call a Denver city government for free if there's any problem with a building code. Uh, and you can just do it. And thanks to the good, strong pro-tenant laws that my dad fought for, uh, people have good rights already. They don't need $20 million to be extracted from the, the doers and the renters and the workers to give to the most privileged of the Denver city council to distribute their uh, boodle. Colorado Speaker of the House, uh, the Colorado Speaker of the House, made a significant move in the spirit of bipartisanship this week when he tapped Republican Representative Mark Catlin of Montrose as the vice chair of the House Agriculture, Livestock, and Water Committee. This change came as a result of the former chair of the committee, former Representative Jenny Arndt, needing to resign due to her being elected of the mayor of Fort Collins. Uh, uh, Marianne, we start with you on this one. You reported on this. Uh, this seemed, I'm not sure if this was historic as it's never happened before, but at least not in recent memory, uh, is it significant and did it make big news at the Capitol? It certainly did. Uh, the suggestion initially was that Catlin become the chair of the House Agriculture Committee, but that was a bridge that was a little too far for Garnett. The reaction to this announcement has been overwhelmingly positive, and I interviewed Speaker Garnett right after the story came out. He said this was just a matter of common sense, but there's also a need for a somewhat more experienced hand to be in leadership in that committee. The committee chair, Dr. Karen McCormick, is a veterinarian, but she's a first-year lawmaker. So putting Catlin in will keep the committee on a, an even keel. Um, Garnett also said he didn't pick any of the other Democrats who are on that committee because almost everyone else is in leadership or chairs another committee, with the exception of Representative Don Valdez of La Jara, who apparently wasn't considered, which I found kind of interesting. Uh, Patty, is this more than just a polite nod to bipartisanship? Well, it's a smart move on many levels, one of which is rural Colorado has been very concerned about being cut out of things, and certainly they are concerned about what's going on with agriculture, with these natural resources. So this is a good committee to do it on, but I'd like to see it in other committees too. David, uh, as you referenced your father before, he did a, a lot about uh, the history of the legislature. You know, and he, he'd be the first one to be able to say, here's where it happened before, if it ever happened before. Uh, what are your thoughts with this move? I'm fairly sure that at least in the last six decades, it, it's never happened. So this is uh, a, a very, even though it's a vice chairmanship of the committee instead of the chairmanship, it, it's a real uh, bold move by, by Speaker Garnett. And as people are saying, it's popular, it's sensible. It's going to have to help the Agriculture Committee get its work done better. And a lot of what the Ag Committee does shouldn't be on, on partisan issues. It, it's about uh, uh, 
helping farmers and, and ranchers. And, and so I think it's, it's a brilliant move, and I think it will set a, a great precedent in the future in the legislature. Eric, you look at Speaker Garnett's record, there's a lot to, to, to judge him on, and this is just the beginning of his speakership, but this feels like that's going to be a significant part of what we look back on in Speaker Garnett's uh, tenure. What do you think? I agree. It's one of those moments that will be remembered. Credit to Alec Garnett for having the initiative and the courage and, and just the oomph to, to do something like this. I agree with the comments of Marianne and Patty and David. I think on the substance of it, it is good for the committee and it is an overdue but necessary positive signal from Democratic leaders uh, to rural Colorado. But more than that, we have so little bipartisanship these days. I think the public is just starving for it and any small sign of it, and this was only a small step, but still an important symbolic step and the public just rallied around it because, again, they're starved for more of it. Well, it is time for our very favorite part of the show, Disgrace of the Week. As always, Patty, please start us off. Well, this is a long-running disgrace. We just talked about it last week. But the unemployment fraud in Colorado, it was bad when we were talking about it at this table, but it turned out while we were talking about it at this table, it was getting worse. And they sent out this lemons into lemonade press release that said, yeah, so we paid $19 million in fraud claims, but we could have paid $437 million in fraud claims. So that was part of the disgrace. I want to flip it a little, though. It's Denver Restaurant Week, which is a great event and such a tough year for restaurants that are having trouble hiring now. They've got, they're back in business at 50% capacity if they've got to have the six feet, or they can be 100%, but they're saying they're basically running at 50 with that, with that rule, and they cannot find people to work. So we've gone from the horrible unemployment problems that we saw a year ago, and now we've got people who can't find workers to get their businesses going again. You wonder if some of those workers that restaurateurs are looking for can no longer afford to live in. It's in the same situation. The housing market's going, it's making last year look like a walk in the park. Can they find the employers, the employees to work? It's a they're good raising, question. They're raising what they're paying, too. They just can't find them. Mm -hmm. David, we go to you for Disgrace of the Week. Well, Montrose County, for taking a good step uh, against a disgrace, they adopted a resolution making themselves a sanctuary against the forced introduction of wolves into Montrose County of a species that have never existed ev ever in Colorado as a native species. Uh, it's going to be devastating for hunting in the on the western slope, devastating uh, for, for cattle and sheep. And I, I think the fair compromise is do the wolf introduction in the counties that voted for it, starting with Boulder. Eric, we go to you for your disgrace. Oh, here, here to David. Well said and right on. Uh, my disgrace, there's so many possibilities. How about new state representative Ron Hanks? I know Marianne covers him on a daily basis a new Republican state representative down from the Fremont County area of the state. He missed uh, the opening of the legislature back in January uh, because he was in Washington, D.C. for the events of January 6th. To be fair, he says he was not at the Capitol that day, but he was still part of the, uh, the stop the steal nonsense. More recently, he took to the floor of the House for reasons that I do not get to defend the notion, the three-fifths compromise where people with Negro blood, African-American blood, were three-fifths of a citizen, uh, just kind of crazy land that other Republicans need to denounce. 
Marianne, we go to you for your disgrace. This is probably going to surprise a few people, but Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi, who said George Floyd sacrificed his life for justice after the verdict came down in the Derek Chauvin case. A sacrifice is a choice. Floyd didn't have one. Time to say something nice about somebody. Patty? A sign that we're getting back to normal or the new normal, which is Red Rocks reopened last night for the concert season. That's a capacity of 2,500, which is great. And if you want to go see it for yourself, there's an event on the 28th where you can go. It's all going to be local performers who've been playing music through COVID, nurse who played, a 10-year-old who played online benefit concerts. And there will be an 8 o'clock howl by the people who created the howl in Denver, and it went around the world. So that's great news for Red Rocks, great news for Denver, and Red Rocks is celebrating its 80th anniversary this year. That's one of Colorado's true assets. Here, here, and uh, PBS 12 has been very excited to get back into Red Rocks. We, we're still working on capacities and bands, the whole business, but you can count on uh, a semblance of our summer concert series coming back this year. We don't know how many, but we're coming back at some level. David. Former Vice President Walter Mondale, who passed away this week uh, under President Carter, he really kind of founded the modern vice presidency as a significant advisor to the president and not just a worthless ceremonial job. And he was, uh, in, in some ways, the best of the Democratic Party uh, of his time in the sense that he was a, a true liberal, very, very much in favor of free speech, uh, very strong on, on due process, uh, very strong ally, a, a supporter of our Democratic ally in the Middle East, uh, Israel. The, the Democratic Party would do well uh, to get back to some of Walter Mondale's liberal values. Eric, we go to you. I'm a couple of weeks late on this, Dominic, and wasn't on the show when it happened. I know others of you talked about it, but I just want to pay credit to former Colorado Chief Justice Mary Malarkey, who passed away a few weeks back. Uh, I was privileged to work with her in my youth uh, back in Governor Dick Lamb's office uh, uh, several decades ago. Uh, I didn't always agree with her jurisprudence, to be sure, but she was a constitutional scholar. She was a good boss. The uh, stuff that has befallen the Colorado Judicial Department certainly did not happen uh, under her leadership or under her watch. And maybe most importantly, she and her husband, hello, Tom, uh, were and Tom remains a loyal, regular viewer of this program. Marianne, we go to you for Say Something Nice. Uh, I want to salute Darnella Frazier. Uh, this is the black teenager who had the courage to videotape George Floyd's murder. When you look at the official statement from the Minneapolis Police Department, they called this a medical incident during a police interaction. We might not have known that Derek Chauvin murdered George Floyd without Frazier's courageous act, which she continued by testifying at the trial. And just as a reminder, Anyone in Colorado is allowed to take video of what the police are doing so long as you don't interfere. Here, here. Well, that is certainly all the time we have for this episode of Colorado Inside Out. I have one last reminder. Mark your calendars. May 26th at 7 p.m., a very special live event where we'll be including all of you as part of our CIO panel. More details on that to come. For everybody here at PBS 12 and Colorado Inside Out, I'm Dominic Tizzuti. Thanks so much for watching. Good night. Thank you.